0: and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. This episode is sponsored by PlanScope. PlanScope is a project management and collaboration app built for freelancers and the way they work with clients. It makes it easy to price up new estimates, and once you're underway, help answer the question, will this get done on time and under budget? I've been using PlanScope to do my estimates and manage my projects, and I really, really like it. It makes it really easy to keep things in order and understand when things will get done. You can go check it out at planscope.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 85 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuven Lerner. Hello. Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? Eric Davis. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, we were supposed to have a special guest, but there was a scheduling conflict, and so we are going to... We're just going to talk about a discussion that we had in our little private channel on Skype. And Reuven was asking about basically starting up a kind of a screencast series, and there was a lot of good advice in there. So I I think generally it's going to be aimed more toward getting started with products, but I I think he provided a specific use case that we can kind of riff off of if we need to.
1: Sure. So, I mean, I've been, (laughs) after hearing lots of good advice from the other folks in the podcast, I decided the time has come, even though I haven't quite finished the dissertation yet, to start dipping my toes into the product waters. And one of the ideas that I had was to do a screencast series. And I was thinking about a few different, uh, options. What, what seems likely now is to do a subscription screencast series on a PostgreSQL. And so I said, well, I should probably run this by the other folks in the, in the, uh, you know, podcast and see what they have to say. So my first question, I guess, and I'll, I'll sort of re- rehash the question and then we can see what everyone says is, so I want to start a screencast series. How do I go about doing that or sort of letting people know? beyond just sort of setting it up and announcing it to my LinkedIn contacts and my Facebook friends is is that going to be enough to actually make it a viable business
0: yeah and uh, you know there were, there were definitely some thoughts there Eric do you remember the wise advice you gave before I jump in and start talking that was over
2: 24 hours ago I don't remember anything <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing and I think I've had this problem myself so it's from my experience too but it's uh, you know, if you have an idea for a product and you say, I'm going to, you know, do a screencast series on Postgres and you put all the time into it, build it and launch it. A, a lot of times what can happen is you're not going to get a lot of people coming in. It's not going to be, you're not going to get significant enough sales early on to really feel like this is a viable business. And a lot of that comes from the fact that. that you know, when you really look at it, you have this like kind of network of people that you know, whether on LinkedIn or on Twitter or, you know, just friends and maybe people locally, like a user group or something. And those people, while there might be even a good size amount, not all of them are going to be interested in it. And even if it's a good amount, at some point, you're going to really tap out um all the people in your kind of the first degree network. So... Kind of something I've been kind of learning and picking up more is like if you can't kind of get outside of your network and attract customers, it's going to be really hard to build you know a service or a product into a business. And this also, like I said, this also goes for like freelancing services, too.
1: So it might be well and good that I've got, you know, an enormous number of links, but that's just that's just not going to be enough. I'm going to have to somehow get in touch with people who I've never heard of, somehow get them to hear about me get them exposed to this service that I'm offering and then somehow get them to sign up and pay me as well.
2: Yeah. And I mean, with a subscription, it's a little bit better because the ideal is, you know, you get say a hundred customers in one month and by the end of the month, you know, 99, 98 of them are still going to be there. So you don't start from scratch, but like all my eBooks are one-time sales. So every month I have to make the sales up again, like on the first, I start from zero again. And so, with one-time stuff, it's it's a lot harder because you really have to continuously bring in new customers, or your revenue is just going to go down to zero. Mm-hmm. The hard thing with subscription, on the other hand, is you know you're selling people on a subscription, so it's a it's a monthly commitment. It's not like an impulse buy, and that tends to make it even harder to get started. But once you get started, it kind of builds on itself, and I think Rob Walling talks about this. It's like the flywheel effect of takes you know a hundred pounds of force to get that flywheel moving. But once it's moving, keeping it moving at the rate it's going is a lot less.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I've seen with a lot of the stuff that I've tried out is that it really helps to have a platform. And so, you know, if you just go out there and announce to the world that you're going to put out a a series on Postgres, or I think your other idea was a Unix command line tools or something like that. Yeah. uh, You know, whatever it is, People have to know that, you know, that you're out there, that you're an, an expert. And so you need something out there that kind of proves that. And so if you look at some of the other subscription models, such as Avdi Grimm's Ruby Tapas, I mean, he has, he has three or 4 ebooks, He's on Ruby Rogues, you know, Ruby Rogues Parlay. There's a whole lot going on that he could tap into and say, hey, I'm getting this started. And so as it ramped up, it ramped up rather quickly. Um RailsCast Pro is kind of the same thing. I mean, Ryan had been doing that for a long time, and then he turned around and said, "Okay, I'm offering Pro, and I'm offering what people have been asking me for, like updates to old, old ones, and you know, specific new ones." And it worked out for him. Um I'm not sure what Gary Bernhardt did to build up to his destroy all software. Uh, I think is, it's a similar I'm thing.
3: Speaking, mostly, sorry,
0: but yeah, I,
3: like uh, of the uh, I mean, you're right, Audie, Ruby Rogues, and Parlay, and his e-books, but even before that, I mean, he spoke at a bunch of conferences, uh, regional and national, and uh, he had a big following from that. And I think Ryan Bates is interesting because he, I think he started from nothing. I mean, he happened to be the first, probably, uh, in the, I don't know, language-specific screencast series, maybe... I don't know what the timeline is with Jeffrey Grossenbach and Peepcode, but I mean he was doing weekly and Grossenbach was doing sort of ad hoc releases. But so Ryan was a little different just because he was first. But then Gary did a lot of speaking, I think first in Python and then in Ruby. And I think his he's mentioned it I'm, it's hard to tell with Gary if his tweets or snark or serious, but <laughs> it, it seems that, um, his little watt talk for, I don't know, his little five minute lightning talk for JS conf or code mash or one of those, like a regional conference. He said that did a lot for destroy all software because it basically went viral or something, but I think his platform was mostly conference speaking.
0: Yep. But in, in any case, I mean, there's, there's a track record there. People know who, knew who they were, uh, were interested in what they were talking about. And so they, they went and signed up. I think you can do it the other way where, you know, you have a few people who are talking about what you're doing and then from there building up. But I think it's easier if you already have that community that you can reach into and say, Hi folks, I know who you are. I'm one of you. And here's what you wanted.
3: That's definitely part of it, and I think Eric, in the back channel, talked about uh, Ryan Bates and his consistency. I mean, he has God knows, 350 some odd uh, casts before he took a pause and then sort of an indefinite hiatus for a long time, which seems to be a kiss of death, which is off-topic, but kiss of death, death for screencasters that make that their solo business. They run out of ideas or get burnt out, but From consistency, it helps about, uh, it helps to have more than one episode. So, I mean, you can have a platform and tell people that you're going to do the screencast, but it might be worth it upfront. I, I don't know, Chuck, you probably know better. What's the, there's some magic number for podcasts to get over the hurdle before you know they're going to stay and make that number of screencasts and just focus on the content. And have enough so that people aren't waiting to see if you're going to be around for the next week or month or whatever.
0: There are a couple of numbers that I've heard, but my understanding is is that uh, more than half of the podcasts that get started don't make it past episode six. And of the ones that make it past episode six, I think another half drop off after t- or before ten. Uh, hmm. And so you know, the ones that make it are the ones that stick around past there, and that's about two and a half months if you're doing a weekly show and by then I mean if you've been doing it for two or three months I think people are pretty comfortable that you're gonna be around
3: if you can work in and this is sort of tactics but maybe you can work in a free episode every once in a while I think I mean Ryan Bates had a consistent mix I think his publishing schedule was like one free and then one pro or two pro a week or something in the beginning and then it, and then it switched and I think Gary made one or two free free i've made a couple free in the beginning but so even if your initial content is not all paid then you give people some teasers and for most screencasters once you pony up for the subscription you get all the back content anyways so just having more content more content out
1: there for people to look at will hopefully get more people into your funnel yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also, if it's free, it's not just for the people who might be interested, but they can then, you know, it can then has the potential to go viral. Or at least be mentioned by others, you know, because if you are interested in something and you hit a pay- paywall, it's bad. But if you think someone else might be interested, and they'll hit a paywall, it's even worse.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is you get all the benefits of the SEO from it. You get all the benefits of putting it in search engines like uh, YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. It it can really pay off in a lot of ways to have these free ones out there every so often, even if it's just a back catalog of a handful of uh, videos that can help people out.
2: Right. Well, we've talked sense. about this before with mm-hmm. like other products where you you kind of need like a funnel idea where you know your paid product is kind of where you want people to end up, and you either got to give free information like from like a blog post, or you know somehow have either lower price things to work you know their way up to your kind of a high end product. And in the case of you're doing like a screencasting product, the subscription service would be your high-end product, even though it's might not be a, a lot per like each month as the overall value of the, the customer, is going to be a lot higher. And so, you know, you might have, you may, might even sell like one-off, like, you know, if you want to buy one specific screencast, it's, you know, five bucks, nine bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. I mean, that's kind of peep codes model. And then they have their unlimited, which is a couple hundred a, a year. And so, you know, that lets you sample peep code. And then if, even if you don't even want to commit money, I'm, I'm pretty sure they have like demo reels or whatever of a couple minutes. So you can see each, each screencast like, Oh, would I even be interested in learning about Ember or whatever? But that's something you just need to think about. And however you do it, whether I think Obji does the one free to two paid a week or something, or I know Gary Bernhardt had one f- free one on the homepage. And then like, I think a sample of a, a paid one and that was it. And you know, you, you kind of got to figure out how you're gonna, how you're gonna basically prove that this service, the knowledge you have, is valuable to potential customers and get them to be interested in actually paying for it. You know, you can't go from buy my stuff, buy my stuff to a paid product. You have to kind of do <laughs> gradual steps. <laughs> oh, you laugh, but I mean, there's a lot of companies that do that, and it's it's funny. You can see see they get made fun of by other people that know how to do marketing. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, I don't know that much about marketing, but it seems pretty clear to me that maybe you'll make some sales that way, but you'll make way, way more if you, um, if, if you demonstrate that you know what you're talking about and that people trust you as an authority for sure.
2: Right. And I've seen this in membership sites where it's similar to screen, screencast descriptions where someone's paying a certain amount per month and they're getting access to something that's valuable. And membership sites, it's typically just like text or maybe there's some video thrown in, but it's not, it's predominantly text information. And, if you have it open, like a lot of the examples we've talked about, what can happen sometimes, someone will sign up for one month, download everything for the past nine months and then cancel. And so if you actually do the really hard sell, you're going to get a lot of sales like that where, you know, you tell them, Hey, just buy my stuff. I don't have any free stuff free to try. Someone buys it, jumps in, grabs all your stuff, cancels and then does that every six months or something. Mm-hmm.
3: You worry about that. The whole idea that. So you get to a point, like, I I don't know, I was looking uh, to see what Ruby Tapas was based on the platform and it's Git DPD. But uh, so he's at, um, obviously like 140 or something Tapas and Eric, what Eric just mentioned. It seems like there's some, it's almost like the fear of getting your software pirated or getting your ebook pirated and put on BitTorrent. Or so you get the one guy that comes in. And pays it ten bucks or nine months, and then nine bucks for the month. And then downloads your whole catalog, and then unsubscribes, and then waits another six months. And I, I mean, I guess that thing can happen. I just don't know if you care about it, if the person's going to do anything with the videos once they download them. Hopefully, they'll be back to keep watching. But I, I don't know how much I would spend mental energy on people that are going to come in just to grab all your episodes and
2: unsubscribe immediately. Yeah, I'm not saying that to worry about it. I'm saying because you're always going to have customers that are going to abuse you. Like They're going to try to work the system. Um, I guess my point was, if you were giving a lot of stuff away and were providing value before you even asked them to buy stuff, the people who are going to go all the way through and buy your things are going to have some a lot more trust in you. You're going to they're going to feel more connected to you and they're going to feel bad if they rip you off or if they put your stuff on BitTorrent or whatever. Versus if you didn't do that, you might just get someone in there who is that's what they do. They go and get a whole bunch of things and put on BitTorrent and give it to all their friends. So it's its the idea of kind of building up trust with your potential customers and kind of I hate to the, using the word community for this, but it's kind of you have a community around it where you know, you guys are watching shows back. And as long as you're creating a lot of value and really actually trying to help your customers, they're going to appreciate it and kind of respond in the right way.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm I'm only a single data point, but I mean, for the screencast services that I subscribe to, I mean, I, I look forward to the new screencast. I'm cheering on the author basically to get new content out because I'm looking forward to consuming it so i mean i don't know i'm assuming most customers that are paying you fear stuff on a subscription
1: basis or sort of in the same way but who knows so i mean okay so i have to establish authority in some way and trust what are the ways that i do that
0: well i think we talked about a lot of those with the blog and the you know the speaking and uh, i I mean because that's what avdi did you know he's on a podcast he wrote some books he's you know, his blog's fairly popular. Um, he spoke at the conferences. Uh, Gary was speaking at conferences. Ryan Bates put out uh, videos that were free that were fairly uh, popular, and he was very consistent about that. And so people knew that they could count on him putting out pro videos when they paid him. And there's, and I, think I think you that's... have to
3: worry about the level, too, right? I mean, you could try to come and I don't know. What your positioning is, but I mean, you could try to come in at the high end and you'd want to do all the stuff that Chuck just rattled off. I mean, you want to be like keynote speaker or premier speaker at a bunch of events and people look to you for commentary, blah, blah, blah. Or you can be honest and upfront with your audience in the beginning and say, uh, I've done it for a while. I might not be an expert, but I've got a lot of information that I want to teach and there are probably enough people that aren't
1: at the level you're at and would be happy to consume that material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's my feeling. Like I know there are people who know much, much more about these topics like, for instance, Postgres than I do, but I know in my day-to-day work and my consulting work, I encounter a huge number who know way less than I do. So, I'd be sort of look, look, looking at them. You know, the, the folks who know the internals don't need my help. And there's not much I can do to help them to tell you the truth.
2: Yeah. One thing I want to say here, though, is especially because a lot of the examples we talked about, they came from, they already have a group of people that follow their stuff like Railscast. If you're starting from scratch, like you don't have a blog or you don't have any public stuff that says you're an authority or you know this, don't feel like you need to go and spend three years making free screencasts or blogging before you can actually do your paid product. You can start your paid product now. It's going to be a little bit more work to build the trust up, but you know, just the fact that if you have a good, high-quality product that's solving problems, as you get customers, they're going to like enjoy it, all that, and that's going to build your authority just as fast. And if you, I don't know if you guys were around when Peepcode first started, but uh, Jeffrey didn't have a lot of stuff out there. Like he had his blog, which I don't think he updated that frequently, and I don't think Peepcode ever had free videos, but. He was stuck with it and put out such high quality stuff that over time people said, yeah, peep code's your resource. They have only paid products, but it's worth the $9 or $11 for each video. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: One other conversation that we had around this was uh, figuring out which topic to pick and whether or not it would be profitable to do it. Mm-hmm. So the, the first one that I, I want to talk about is, you know, how do you pick the, the topic that you're going to go with? Do you go with the one that you think has more appeal? Do you go with the one that you're more passionate about? Yes. I say you have to.
3: <laughs> I, I, I was going to say. I mean, you have to be passionate. And I, I alluded earlier to the kiss of death. I mean, but a lot of people have gone the full in with screencasting and made that their full-time job, and they run out of I. Id- I mean, they run out of ideas. I mean, to be fair, Ryan's done five years of railscast or four years of Railscast. So he's done a lot 350 episodes whatever he's did he's done and he did a lot of consulting and uh, he admits that a lot of his a lot of his topics came from his consulting i think Abdi has mentioned a couple of times that some of his uh some of his inspiration for ruby tapas was from the pair programming sessions that he did with people and uh, i'm not sure where he's getting his inspiration now but Uh, Definitely, uh, you want to make it as easy as possible to be consistent. And if that means being passionate about the content, then that's probably what you want to be. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating from a consumer standpoint in someone that has a schedule and you're paying for the subscription and it doesn't come out. And uh, I'm not going to name names, but I subscribe to this one screencast series and almost every month when I see the bill, it's like, I really need to cancel this because I think there's been one release in a month and they sort of stretch it as long as they can and they push two episodes at the end of the month and then somehow they work out six weeks between episodes or something. But, I mean, uh, you have to be able to to produce and deliver content consistently and however, however you muster the will to do that, I would
1: do that way. So inspiration and enthusiasm would be high on my list. Right, right. I mean, I guess the the closest thing to this I've, I've done has been my Linux Journal column, which I've been writing for a long time, what, since 96, so every month I've been writing a column. And I'm certainly still excited about it, and it doesn't give me trouble to write it, but it's also a much wider topic area, meaning more or less they give me carte blanche to talk about whatever I want, and I can say, well, this is sort of interesting to me. Um, whereas a subscription service, by definition almost, is going to be much more specific and narrowly defined. So finding that balance between having enough to say and keeping passionate about it but also um you know something that of depth is is probably a bit of a tricky thing.
2: Well there's one thing you can do with like the have enough topics to talk about which I don't I haven't seen many people really do. I don't know if it's because they don't know about it or it's just they find it's not a good strategy but if you start with say you know you pay you charge people monthly and say you do a screencast every week or so on we'll say Postgres. You know, you do that for nine months, and if you run out of topics, whether it's because you can't think of anything, you're not smart enough, you know, you're not working in Postgres enough, whatever. At those nine months, you can stop the subscription service, bundle up those nine months of screencasts, and just sell those as a standalone product. You know, you basically tell people, I'm not, you're not going to get any new content with this, but here's nine months of stuff. And so you convert your, you know, your screencast stuff into this one-time download. And, you know, as a business, that might not be the best thing, but at the same time, if your passion or your schedule just says that you can't really do this weekly stuff anymore without basically phoning it in, um, that might be the best strategy to take, you know, basically phased out the product and convert it to something where new customers still get a ton of value from it, but it's not a reoccurring type thing.
1: Gary Bernhardt actually did that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, the other thing is, is it
0: it seems to have... or. For me, integrity is a big thing, and the, it feels like that's uh, a very, in, what is the word, integrous thing to do, where basically you, you know, you tell people, look, this is where it is, so rather than give you substandard content just so that I can hit my monthly quota, you know, here you go, and, uh, you know, yeah, then you just, you just give it away to the people who are subscribed, and, you know, new subscribers, so to speak, just pay one fee to get the whole thing. Right. Right. And there, I think there are other ways. I mean, hopefully, hopefully
3: you have an active community once you get in a month or so in. Hopefully, who knows how long it takes a month or six months or whatever. And hopefully there's enough comments and you have a way for the, the community to comment and you can always go back and revisit topics, uh, which is one way to do it. I mean, I, I imagine there's a way that you could do like sort of live episodes, seminar, webinar type question-answer type free gatherings and get people to ask you questions and some stuff you might have covered, some stuff you haven't. I mean, I think the easiest way to come up with new ideas is going to be just the more people you can talk to.
0: Is that like on Millionaire where you ask the audience?
3: <laughs> I'd like to call a friend. No, I want to say there, there was go. a while a ago. Yeah, a while ago there was... Um, Erin Blasky, she does, uh, she did some freelance cons- web design consulting stuff. She's in Canada, but she used to, she used to do like a, uh, um, a live chat, like Friday afternoons or something. And it was like a one hour on Justin TV or one of those. And it would just sort of be, uh, just more hangout, but, uh, so ask questions that she could answer it. And so it was just. A bunch of people chatting and i want to say there was a rails-ish one that happened for a very short period of time like maybe two or three months they were trying to do like a not a call-in show but sort of like a public webinar kind of there's a couple people that do google hangouts now i think there's a dc-ish group ruby group that does a hangout but so that's another idea. I mean, it, and it can be in addition to the regular content. I mean, just have some thing that you do on a regular basis. Again, consistency, but then if you get some people hanging
1: out and asking you questions, it's hopefully another opportunity to get more ideas. Right. Right. I mean, I would normally assume that subscribers would suggest ideas, but I know at least from my Linux Journal column, if I get one email a month from a reader, that's a lot so maybe that's really a much different thing right <laughs> yeah i was gonna say Are they,
3: is that delivered digitally
1: or is that still print no no it's, it's delivered digitally they surprised us about three years ago two years ago guess what authors were shutting down the printing presses yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah i think i think a lot of it though comes back to uh both the passion and and honestly if you're going to pick between um uh, something that makes you enough money and is and you're passionate about versus something that you know you think will reach more people, and maybe make you more money. Uh, it for me anyway, I'm much more likely to stick with it if I if I love it as opposed to if it you know because once it once it passes a certain threshold with the income, then it, it, the income becomes less important uh, to me. But anyway, mm-hmm. I'd one last thing I, before you change topics. No, I was just gonna say as far as ideas go, if if I love something. I tend to play with it even if I'm not working in it right at the moment. And so, you know, I'll, I'll probably have more ideas for the things that I'm more passionate about. That was all I was going to say.
3: True. And so another, another option might be, I mean, uh, there, there's a subreddit for everything and there's probably forums and mailing lists and just lurk on the mailing lists and the forums and subreddits and see what people are asking about and what they have problems with. And if, they don't have a sufficient answer, even if they do get an answer that solves their problem and you haven't covered it in a screencast, then you can rehash it and give your take on it. I mean, if somebody's asking it, probably somebody else needs to ask it too.
1: Right, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I'm I'm a little bit curious because I've looked into doing some things like this myself, um, and I even started building my own little platform for it. Don't do that. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that you can go and set up WordPress plus some membership thing and uh, whatever for, you know, in in, in less than an hour, maybe two hours.
3: There are are a million ways to do it, probably. Like I said, I looked up Avdi because I wanted to make sure I was passing on the right thing. And his is uh, get DPD on, I don't know what to say, digital platform, something, whatever. Digital
2: product delivery.
3: Okay. So, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, his his comes out as an email, and you can get uh, RSS subscription to it. But there's no web interface. I mean, uh, maybe there is. There maybe is, but it just, sucks. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh,
2: DPD is what I use for my one-time ebook sales. Like Obdi is using the subscription product type, and it's it's new. I think Obdi was kind of their beta user because I know him and DPD support was going back and forth getting like iTunes feeds and all that. But I mean, it's I. I was paying five bucks a month. I'm paying ten bucks a month. I mean, that's that's actually more than what you need to kind of get your platform going. You know, it's yeah. you don't need to make customs offer for it.
3: No, and I did, and that's the worst thing you can ever do. When I uh, when we were selling BDG Cast, we spent I don't know two or three times total the amount of time we ever spent on content. We spent two or three amount two or three times oh, that gosh. amount trying to build this stupid custom software and it it was just ridiculous. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, WordPress and some sort of subscription plugin or the Railscast source code is on GitHub and you can get that and use that or get DPD. I think even Gumroad, there are probably 20 different services that let you sell digital content super easy so I would not waste any time on that.
2: There's a quote I, I read in a, like a writing book or somewhere, but they basically said, if, like this is to professional writers. Like if you're a writer, the best thing you can do to advance your business is to write more books. They even said marketing is not as important as writing because when you think about it, when you're writing another book that helps, like that gives you more opportunities to market. And that kind of brings up your older books too. And I kind of think of that when I look at my consulting stuff or anything like if, If you're going to do a screencasting product that teaches about a topic, making more screencasts is probably the most valuable part of that business. Even if you have the worst interface for people to actually download the screencasts, if you make more screencasts, people are still going to jump through those hoops to get them.
0: Yeah. The the other thing is, is that hopefully if it's of high enough quality, it'll get to somebody who will talk about it. And so if they have, and I'm going to use Eric's favorite word again, platform, or, if, you know, <laughs> wh- whatever you want to call it, if they have a community, a, a, a group of people that they care about, that care about them, and will listen to their recommendation, and they say, hey, look, if you really want to learn Postgres, uh this Reuven guy over here has some awesome videos, uh go check it out. People are going to go sign up, and they'll go sign up just off of that one person's word. And so, I mean, you, you really... You know, you put out quality content, you make some good contacts, um, you know, be interested in them, see what you can do for them, and it'll probably pay off. Right.
1: I actually contacted both Avdi, who was very generous and wrote back to me and was very encouraging, and he, he told me that he uses DPD and he's happy with them, and he said exactly the same thing as you guys were, which is he gets to concentrate on his screencasting then, and he said, yes, the website doesn't look as good then, but he gets to concentrate on what he wants to, and they take care of the rest. And I also contacted the DPD people and I asked them a few questions about it. And um, partly because I'm in Israel and I want to know what the payment options would be to get it to me, to my company in Israel. And they said I would have to use PayPal, which, I mean, it's not ideal, but it's not, you know, so, so terrible. Just actually the real problem with PayPal is the conversion rate to other currencies, but fine, I'll live. And they also asked them if it would be possible to have multiple pricing structures. So if I want to have an individual price and an enterprise price or something, and they said, oh, yes, they they take care of that. It's fine. The only thing they don't do is let you automatically have the same content in subscriptions and individual uh, purchases. So one of you mentioned earlier that you you can take individual screencasts maybe and sell them separately. And so that is possible with DPD, but you have to put it in a separate store and manually move it around. But even that does not sound so terrible.
2: Mm-hmm. No, and I mean if if I think I know what's going on, like yeah, you make a new store and you upload the new file and set a price, and you're done. Like it's right. I actually have I think four quote storefronts in DPD because I have automation stuff separated differently. So actually, every one of my ebooks is in a different store,
1: and that's because it gives you a chance to track it more easily. Like why would not you not have all your ebooks in the same store, for
2: instance? Um, it's basically because if each ebook has its own mailing list of people who signed up for it. And this is actually because DPD didn't have a feature that they have now. And so if someone bought book A, I'd want them to get on the mailing list for book A so I can tell them there's an update. But I don't want to tell people that bought book B because it's not relevant to them. But they've, DPD's changed that. So I'm actually in the process of consolidating into one store right now. So, but I mean, setting up a new store and uploading your product, like you said, it's probably a 15 minute operation once you know what you're doing and
1: you found that DBD has good service i mean they responded to my query pretty quickly but that doesn't necessarily mean anything
2: yep yeah i mean they've had they've had a couple downtimes i think they had some uh, ddos attacks or something but it's been very minor i mean m- my server if i hosted it all myself would go down easily 10 times more than their actual store stuff and the fact that they handle paypal and then a couple of clicks and i added stripe support i mean that's they probably saved me dozens of hours of actual custom development
1: So basically, if I just set up, uh, like WordPress on my server and with each new episode, I have a headline or something and then a link to the DPD store to the subscribers to log in. I've basically done all the software development I need, as it were, on my server. Yep. That's pretty nifty. Now, Eric, speaking of mailing lists, you had a, a lot of really, really good suggestions and advice about setting up mailing lists, both sort of initial interest mailing lists for a landing page and then contacting people and Segmenting and, and sort of figuring out the marketing for
2: that,
0: yeah, do you want to talk through that because I thought that was fascinating
2: yeah, so this is, the context of this is the mailing list to kind of get an idea of one kind of who your potential audience would be, two to kind of test. Where they're coming from and to three to kind of figure out like what they want. Um, and so it's, it's not kind of the, my weekly newsletter or here's the monthly mailing list for my company. It's not in that. It's just in this case, we're using email to deliver it. But the idea is kind of the classic. You make a coming soon landing page that says, uh, I've like I'm starting a Postgres screencasting series. Um, would you be interested? Sign up below and, you know, opt in form to kind of put your email address in it. And with that, you can then send traffic to it from, you know, whatever, whatever sources you want to try, see how those convert, see if you can get people that are both in your kind of your, your network of people you know, like from like putting on Twitter or whatever, but then also getting outside that network and seeing how effective you can reach outside. And that's, I mean, that's like the, basically the first step of any kind of business is like how easy and how much is it going to cost to actually attract customers or actually in this case, even potential customers.
1: So I mean, ju- just there, I'm sort of curious to know. So let's say I put out links and, you know, announcement on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and a few other places. How do I know based on the mailing list signups, which is converting? Am I going to give them a different
2: URL or is, or is it obvious or is it kept track of somehow? Uh yes th- I mean there's a lot of ways Um easiest way is you know you're probably gonna have Google Analytics on the landing page and you can use the UTM parameters to say this came from another website uh, the website is this is the website and the actual link they clicked was like the call to action at the bottom of the post versus if you bought like a banner ad or whatever you can also send them to different landing pages like you can have like I think I said yesterday I have like over two dozen landing pages and some of them are all like 80% the same but the 20% that's different is because um, if I'm if I'm sending people to one landing page for freelance marketing I'm going to want the landing page to talk about freelance marketing but if I'm sending people to a landing page um, and the like the ad or the link they clicked was how to get started in freelancing. I want the landing page to say the same thing. I want basically the message that they clicked to be consistent from the action they took on someone else's homepage to my landing page. And that's, that's a big thing. That's how you actually really get good conversion rates. You know, you don't want to click an ad that says learn about marketing and you're on this site learning about sales. Like that's, it's kind of jarring. But Mm -hmm. yeah, basically what you would do is you can, it's very, very easy. You can set up codes to track and know who came from where. And then, depending on how long you do it, you know, you can do like, okay, it's it's Tuesday. I'm gonna have a, a guest post go live on a big Postgres blog, and you know, Tuesday and Wednesday, you're probably most people that sign up are probably coming from that uh, that source.
1: Okay, so I so I get these people to sign up for my mailing uh, for my mailing list, and then you were telling me that okay, now that I've got people signed up, now I can use those people who express some interest to poke them a little more and find out. What would really be of interest to them in terms of schedule, in terms of pricing, in terms of topics?
2: Yeah, uh, you don't want to poke them, but yeah, it, once they oh, I, I know sign up,
1: okay,
2: Once they sign up, like basically, Dave, it's at that point, you can kind of assume they express an interest in the landing page, whether it's because they know you and they like oh i want to learn what he's talking about here and i've had a lot of my customers come because they know my previous stuff i had a quote platform about it some of them might be interested because your headline spoke to them or the details you gave them spoke to them or maybe a friend referred them but all of that's a very small amount of interest and you you're not going to know who has what interest you don't know why bob came versus mary versus sue and so what I've kind of been experimenting with and learning is um, the types of emails you send, you can kind of have people take action and guide and kind of tell you what they're interested in. So if you, like what your first email, you would say, hey, um, there's this interesting thing on the official Postgres blog about performance tuning in a Postgres cluster. Here's your link. Exactly. And through the different software, you can track who actually clicked that link. And if you you, you originally started, like, I'm going to talk about general Postgres stuff, but you found 97% of your people on your list click that link, you know they're going to care about performance. So now you're mm-hmm. going to put performance on your list of topics you want to start covering. Um, and same thing if you sent a link talking about how to set up a Postgres cluster and 1% of people click that, you're going to know, okay, they, they don't want to set up. And you can kind of draw some little conclusions that these might be advanced people. They know how to set stuff up. They can follow instructions, but they want like tuning and kind of optimization stuff. And... You know, this gets into really high-end advanced uh, stuff in your mailing list stuff, but you can actually then send targeted mailings. Like if people click the performance link, you can send only them an email with more performance links or um, we mentioned maybe even sending them a survey of, okay, do you have pro- performance problems with your Postgres cluster? What what problems have you had? Have you solved them? And basically figure out what what real problems they have and figure out if there's any kind of value you can deliver to them. And this works even outside of a screencast. This works for normal products. Like if you're actually building, say, a consulting service about Postgres performance, like this is the same process you can use.
1: Okay, now, so let's say I send it. So people sign up on this landing page. They express an interest. I send them out email with some information, maybe some links. Half of them or some percentage of them click on some link, some other percentage uh, click on another link. Do most of these uh, mailing list services, like we had discussed using AWeber last night in the chat, uh, will Aweber allow me to segment the people and only send a follow up message to um, to those who clicked on the first link or clicked on the second link?
2: Yeah, with Aweber you might have to use another um, tool that I've been experimenting with, but you can you can see who clicked on a link, and you can always you can always at the very least it might not be automated, which is the software I'm looking at, but you can always look at the details of that email and see how many people clicked on it uh, and see actually the people who clicked on it. And for kind of the, I'm starting a product idea, you really, if you can get an idea like, okay, here's a percentage of this versus this, that might be all the comparison you need. Um, because the other thing is some people just might not read your email. So you can't draw a, you know, scientific A, then B conclusion. You can just kind of get a feel for it and use that and, you know, basically use it to kind of help your marketing help you figuring out what you're going to offer not actually being a strict guideline okay
1: and and i can then so how how do i then approach these people let's say they've been clicking on my links let's say they've been opening my messages how can i then approach them and ask them about pricing i mean do i just come out and say how much would you pay for such a, a product or do i give them options
2: uh, i mean you can either way uh one thing is survey the market. I mean, see how much competitors or close competitors are charging. And that's gonna give you an idea of, you know, what people are willing to pay, especially if you know the competitors are successful, like uh Railscast or uh Ruby Tapas, where you know they're making money. It's not just a product out there and no one's buying. And you can ask people, I mean, the hard thing is is, you know, if you ask me, would you pay twenty bucks a month for this, I might say yes. But when it comes down to getting my credit card out, I might hesitate and not do it. The real big test is to actually ask for the credit card and see who actually pays you. Um, and that's, that kind of gets into like a lot of like the lean startup stuff where it's charging people before there's a product. And there's, I've actually heard of a gray area where someone actually did a bait and switch with someone and pissed a lot of people off. But uh, the other thing is, is, I mean, you're starting a business, you're an entrepreneur, you might just have to take, you know, a leap of faith and just say, here's the price. And if people don't respond as much as you want, Go back to them, ask them, and maybe try a lower price or a higher price. Or like instead of a monthly thing, make it a weekly thing or an annual plan. or You know, play with it. Right. Right. That makes a lot of sense.
3: Yeah, I think at least with the screencast market, there's a... I don't want to say, I don't know, the price is set or there's a big precedent. But there are a lot of folks out there that all follow basically the same model. I mean, it's all really close to nine bucks a month for some published schedule who... And the schedule changes a little bit. But I mean, it seems like that's
1: where most screencasts are falling in. Right. Yeah, I've seen $9 a month seems to be the standard price. But uh, there's one uh, on Python that's $9 a month, and you get one a week. And then there are others. I mean, Avdi started doing three a week, but then he moved down to two a week. So, I mean, for Avdi, you, you're basically getting twice as much content for the same price. Now, whether well, that means I- he should be increasing his price, I don't know.
3: You have to look at that a little bit because all of these, uh, topics are all, I think they're all under five minutes, which so, sure. uh, and uh, not that the quantity yeah, is the same across the same, but I mean, is the same as a valid comparison or whatever. But I mean, th- there are some differences and I've, I think I pay maybe 14 a month for one screencast series and that's, t- <laughs> Funnily enough, that's the one funny enough. That's the one I want to drop because their schedule is so inconsistent. But yeah, I mean, screencasts, uh, and it's, I think a lot of this can be traced back to Peep Code. And I think they sort of set the high mark for screencasts, even if it was one off screencasts at nine bucks or 11 bucks or whatever it started out to be. And you're looking at basically a feature length. Production from Jeffrey Grossenbach. It was like an hour and a half with a ton of effects and transitions and all this stuff. And it was, I don't know, it just seems where it got set. And most people fell in line with uh, nine bucks a month or very close to that. If you pay for value, people pay it for value. And so if you can provide the value, I mean, you might be able to get away with a
2: different pricing structure. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like I we have a couple episodes on pricing and almost all the points work the same for products. Like for me when I was an employee when peep code was out, I would pay $9 and it might have saved me 3 or 4 hours which at my, you know, hourly rate that I was getting paid, it might have been a value of say 50 bucks, we'll say. Versus as a freelancer, okay, now that value of saving time to learn it and going the kind of the shortcut route of peep code, it might be worth $200 an episode. Right now, if there, if I knew someone that was putting out like a really good, uh, marketing subscription podcast slash screencast, whatever service, I would probably pay a couple hundred dollars a month for it. And actually, in fact, I did a while back. The reason why is if I spend $200 a month, but I'm getting two, three, $4,000 a month in value and in learning and education as a business owner, that it's stupid for me not to do that. And so I think that's something you have to watch for. Um, peep code kind of set the bar. I think they started at nine, I think up to like 11 or something. And a lot of people just kind of saw that like, that's a competition and we're going to price to match the competition. They didn't really look at how they wanted to be on like how much value people delivers versus how much value they're going to deliver. And it, it can work and it has worked for a lot of people, but you need to look and figure out is that, is your product a direct competitor to these other people or is it a higher end product or is it a lower end product? And, That's, you know, that's a whole pricing discussion. And that's, like I said, you kind of have to do a leap of faith and try some things and see, you know, maybe like we're talking about the Postgres people who are very high end and know about performance. Maybe they're working in jobs where their employer is willing to pay $49 a month, you know, but you're not going to know that unless you talk to them or you actually set that price and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Right, and I guess I mean, if, and if the price doesn't work, there's no rule that says you can't change it. Uh, I mean, you can move it around. It might be tricky to do with a subscription service. Probably, then you need to have them resubscribe at the new price point, especially if it's higher. But I mean, if the business is going to survive and it's not surviving or it's not doing well at one price point, then playing with that might be necessary.
2: One well, uh, Chuck mentioned this earlier. Uh, he was saying how he would want to work on a project that has a certain amount of passion for him, as long as it hit kind of a baseline revenue or whatever if you're undercharging and you know you're undercharging and you're still having to produce it can actually drain your passion knowing that i have to make the screencast and i need to still go do freelance work and i need to have this part-time job just to pay the bills because i chose the wrong price versus if i picked the the price i could just be doing the screencast thing and i wouldn't have my passion getting sucked by all these other tangents um, and that's something to think about, too. I mean, the the more you charge, the more flexibility you have, whether it's to give discounts, to have sales, or just to lower your price and actually make most of your customers happier because you have to pay less.
3: Yeah, there's no quicker way to resent a thing than know you're undercharging for work that you have to keep doing. Yep. Right, right.
0: Yeah, that was a lot of why I don't do teaching Me to Code anymore. I love doing the screencasts and I love interacting with people, but ultimately... When I had to pay for things and when I had to make things work, I mean, I wasn't getting paid for it. So it was one of the one of the things that had to get dropped. And so, you know, it was unfortunate and it's something I want to start up again. But, you know, making it a priority is hard because I have all of these other things that are paid that I also love that are, you know, more important to me. And so, you know, if if I did have a revenue model behind it, it would be a higher priority because I could justify taking the time away from one thing and putting it on that. Right. Anyway, we've been talking for almost an hour. Are there any other aspects of this that we should cover? I, I think there was a little bit of discussion over like the, the video quality versus the, like the production time and the cost. So,
1: right. Right. I mean, I, I have zero experience and I've done some screencasts, but not really that many. So, um, I'm guessing I'll have to spend a fair amount of time learning the ropes and that, and getting the video editing down. Mm-hmm. But you know, you guys were saying, well, it's sort of—it depends on the market, depends on the person. Sometimes the video quality can be amazing, like Peepcode was. It was super, super polished.
0: Yeah, and Eric made a good point in the chat room, and that is, is that, I mean, you could just hire somebody to do the editing for you, and I mean, that's what I do with the podcasts, and and that works out real nice for me, but.
3: Yeah, and I think it's hard. Uh, any sort of post production is just a pain, and it's there's multiples. So I, I don't know what it takes. Um, Mandy to do the podcast, maybe twice the time of a published episode or something like that. But it takes even longer for video, especially if you're cutting in like chapter markers or something else like that. I mean, a video. Video takes a ridiculous amount of time to get done. I mean, and and there are a few schools of thought to that. I mean, uh, I think Gary Bernhardt said he did all his live with, like... He'd do cuts just to take a drink or something, but he would do the whole thing live, and if there was a mistake, he would scrap it and do the whole thing again. He didn't do any editing, but it took him, I don't know, nine or ten passes to get it right. And then if you do go the traditional route and prepare for the episode and have sort of a script you follow and lay it down and then have to go back and edit the video and edit the audio and put it all together. It takes a while. And the hiring is going to be, hiring is interesting. Uh, One of the problems that maybe it's not a huge problem anymore, but video is way bigger than audio is way bigger than text. So you have to find ways to share that video that doesn't kill your network or your offsite storage or whatever. And, Not lose a bunch if you're compressing it down. And it's, it's interesting. Expect it to take way longer than you think it's going to, to get that stuff done. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Just for a a case thing, um, the book I wrote where I had, um, I have almost an hour of video. It took me, I think, six days to write the entire book, but then it took over, I think, a week and a half to record an hour of video. And the hour of video was like, minuscule compared to the amount of content in the book. And that's because I know how to write, I know how to edit and I hired someone to help me and the video I did all myself and basically had to learn from scratch. And so that's, you know, your production is going to get better as you go and as you practice, but you know, you need to take that into account. Like you have to plan your schedule. So if you're going to do a weekly video screencast, uh, you might want to start a couple of weeks ahead of time, at least till you know how long it's going to take.
1: Yeah, I have a cousin who worked in uh, Hollywood in television for many, many years, and we once visited her a few years ago, and she, her job was to be the assistant director, I meaning after they've shot the TV show, she would then sit in a room and say, yeah, we really want a camera one here. No, we really want a camera three here, and let's tighten this up here and there. And that's when I realized if you want super high-quality video, it takes an enormous amount of editing, and it's just... To someone like me, at least, it's mind-numbingly boring. I mean, to her, it was exciting, and she got a bunch of Emmys out of it. So, you know, good for her. But uh, that's definitely not what I want to be spending an enormous amount of time on. But we see. That's part of the deal.
3: Yeah, I mean, luckily, it's normally a single source, just your screen, maybe two sources if you're going to do a talking, floating head over the screen. So there's not a ton of sources to cut in, and you don't need super high-end tools. I, mean, I think the... Um, Oh, uh, there was a peep code on how to do a screencast, and he, I think there were two levels, and he had some really, really high-end tools and, like, a Mac Pro rendering farm to do all the rendering and stuff like that, but, I mean, ScreenFlow is good enough for just about everything, audio and video, and, I mean, a uh, hundred bucks. You could watch the bundles, and sometimes you can grab it for 50 or whatever, but it's definitely worth... uh Definitely worth the money. You can get almost everything done on the, on the screen flow. And then rendering time, and there are services that you can farm out the rendering to if you're going to transcode it to a bunch of different formats, which is another yeah. discussion. But, mm, I mean, I everything takes a long time. It's just yeah. the nature of the beast.
0: And we did do an episode on screencasting, so you know I'm, I'm going to refer a lot of people back to that. And I think we've also done screencasting on some of the other shows. I know we did one on JavaScript Jabber as well. So I'll put links to those in the show notes. But uh, yeah, there is a lot of uh, stuff that you can outsource related to this. Um, Are there any other aspects to the
2: business? Oh, go ahead, Eric. I'll say one thing. I mean, this was actually the bulk of the chat, and we don't need to really talk about it, but you don't need to have the exact same high-quality stuff Peepcode has. Like, You can get by with having a lower-quality version, and depending on what your actual customers want, you know, that you might not need it. Like I actually prefer really short. Like all these tapas are like perfect size for me. And I don't like all the post production and all that stuff. Like peep code works for me, but I I fast forward or I play peep code faster than, you know, one X speed because I, I don't care about a lot of the production. I just want the, the, the knowledge and having an intro and in the different chapter markers is actually a deterrent for me personally. So the kind of the point is to go and figure out what your customers want, what, what they would like to have, and you know, build in the uh, the amount of production quality that they need, and then you know, just stay there. Like, don't worry about making it the best or an Emmy award winning uh, screencast.
1: Right. I'm I'm actually personally attracted also to the Top Us super short, get in, get out. Like, say what you have to say, because the people I work with, like I mean, people we all work with, are busy, and they're much more likely to watch something that's five minutes long than 15 minutes long, let alone an hour long.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for, for me, what, what that speaks to is your audience, right? You understand the audience that you're at. after. You understand that they have these time constraints. And so you also then understand that putting together a short video that immediately and concisely solves their problem is what they want. Right. All right. Well, I think we're about uh, to the point where we need to wrap the show up, but it's been a, a good discussion and hopefully this helps some folks decide how to move forward with their product development be it something that is kind of an ongoing thing or just one-off products. Um, I think there's a lot of good stuff here for that. So, um, I think
3: right before we get into picks, I think one last thing from a business perspective is I don't think there's probably no such thing as too crowded a market in the screencasting space right now. I think there's still a lot of opportunity for a lot of different people to provide a lot of different takes and views on the same topic. So I mean, even if you're interested and you want to do Ruby, which seems to be like the closer language for screencast, turning screencasts into money, there's probably still opportunities there.
0: Yeah, the other thing that I've seen is that uh, generally, if there's nobody in the space, you want to be looking for why that is, because in some cases, yeah, there's a market there, and people are you know people are going to want to buy that product, but in a lot of other cases, there's no market, and that's why. There's nobody there, so pay attention to that as well. You know, go see uh, what's there. But the thing is, is like with Postgres or some of these other topics, um, I've talked to enough people to know that there's a market there for it. So,
1: just some uh, thoughts there. I'm 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 happy you're doing my market research for me, Chuck.
2: Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, well, let's get to the picks, Eric.
2: What are your picks? Um, so I've been I don't I've been kind of like. Sp- messing around with my habits and trying to build better habits. I've kind of, quote, fell off the wagon or got on the wagon, whatever it is, you know, when you don't stop doing them. And I've actually got an app. It's an older iOS app called Epic Win um, that I've been using a lot. I've, it's actually now my main habit tracking app. And I might have picked it before, but it's actually working really good for me now. Um, it's nice to kind of check stuff off and to, to win the game. Other than that, I have nothing else. I haven't been looking online for much of anything recently.
0: All right, Jeff, what are your
3: picks? Uh, so I only have one, and it's, I don't know how genuine a pick it is because I've only seen it, and it looks cool. I've never used it, but it's called Doodle. It's uh, group scheduling. So uh, I think I mentioned last show. I do I coach my daughter's robotics team, and it, this is just a way that I could say practice my house Sunday. Who can be there? Or when can people be there? And it's just does that online,
1: but it looks like cool. little app, So that's my pick.
0: Awesome. Reuben.
1: what are your picks? So I got three picks this week. All of them, uh, sort of fun in nature. Uh, number one is, uh, podcast, uh, planet money from NPR. I've been listening from the beginning. They, uh, they seem to have slowed down a little bit in the number of new episodes they do. But the idea is that it's economics reported from an interesting angle, usually interesting stories and so forth. Uh, I think it's generally a lot of fun. And they're doing this big project now where they've decided to create a t-shirt. Not only the t-shirt is so beautiful, but um they they're doing the entire process of the t-shirt creation from design to the weaving, you know, the picking of the cotton to the creating the thread and on and on and on to the actual creation of the t-shirt as on their broadcast. That's interesting to hear the economics of the, uh, clothing industry, which, I mean, we all, we all wear clothing, I hope, but, uh, I don't know much about how it's produced. So I've really been learning a lot from that. And just in general, it's a fun podcast. Uh, and two other things, I, uh, drink a lot of seltzer. And so I love my soda stream machine. I've had it for a few years. It's very popular in Israel because the company's from Israel, but I know they're now in the U.S. and elsewhere. And if you're a big soda drinker, then great, great fun. And, uh, last but not least, I've discovered, I think years after everyone else did, Thanks to uh, Netflix Futurama, and boy, what a what a fun show! So um, anyway, those are my picks for this week.
0: Awesome. Um, I have one pick this week. It is the the Secret Weapon, uh, the SecretWeapon.org. What it is in a nutshell is it's a way of managing your GTD workflow from your inbox and Evernote. So I've been using this for the past few weeks. I tend to like it for the most part better than OmniFocus. There are one or two things that I wish it had that OmniFocus has, but other than that, it's, it's really, really nice and, uh, it's a system that works for me. I do have the pro version of Evernote and that way I can email stuff into Evernote and things like that. The one issue that I really have with it is the fact that it doesn't e- seamlessly integrate the email that I use, which is the Gmail web interface, uh, with Evernote, so I have to do a lot of forwarding and Importing things with a browser plugin and things like that. the guy that did it he he uses uh Outlook and then there is a plugin for Outlook that allows you to push things back and forth uh, between his version of Evernote and Outlook. And the other thing is is he recorded it on Windows and the Mac version is just a little bit different than the Windows version of Evernote um, unless his version of Evernote is a little old, which is also possible. But uh for the most part I, I really like it and it's working really well so I'm trying to find ways to solve the the discontinuity between the two but um I had the same discontinuity with with Evernote or with Omnifocus so there is that. Anyway, that's my pick. Next week we're going to be talking to Joe Kutner about his book The Healthy Programmer. So don't miss that and make sure you bring read your it. vegetables. That's right. Bring your vegetables and we'll catch y'all next week.